and welcome back to Real Clear with Dr. Klein, the crossroads of politics and psychology. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Welcome back to the Thinking Kind Podcast with Lucas Klein. I'm your host. This is the second episode of the podcast. As like the first, this will be brief, but hopefully useful. I'm going to be addressing the prohibition of dialogue in our modern culture. The term cancel culture now seems almost like a dog whistle. It rustles up objectors who may or may not have a clear understanding of why they're objecting to the term. There are, however, some very important reasons to be concerned about the growing censorship on dialogue that seems to be taking over the Western world. I will describe a few chief issues below. It should be stated, and I will make this clear in the body of the discussion today, that I do not view uh, cancellation and uh, enforcement of silence as some sort of sole characteristic of the left. In fact, throughout history, it is typically a province of the far right. And so, hearkening back to the first episode, I I think horseshoe theory is starting to show itself to have some value here that the two sides are curling around like ends of a mustache to meet each other and to be braided together. Uh, I'm also going to talk about some things that, you know, are important right now. The way we get along together and describe things about one another involves current conversations about race and how people see the world. So I am going to step out over that and address those things in some way in this episode and in following ones. As you know from the first episode, I am a clinical psychologist as well as a psychoanalyst. As such, I often draw upon this training in order to understand experience. The world of psychoanalysis draws from common experience and also enriches it. In contemporary uh, post-Freudian analysis, much is drawn from the relational analysts that populated in the eastern part of uh, the United States and largely in New York City. Uh, Donald Stern is one of the chief authors in this uh, realm of analysis, and he drew heavily upon the works of Harry Stack Sullivan, who was nearly as influential as Freud himself. It could be said that Sullivan interpersonalized the work of psychoanalysis to bring things more into focus on the relational aspect, the interpersonal aspect of what happens in the consulting room between the patient and the analyst. Stern writes prolifically, as do his colleagues, about the process of formulation of experience itself. In so doing, 
he helps us understand that one of the chief purposes of psychoanalysis is to engage in dialogue, which transports experience that exists in an unformulated or unarticulated manner into a spoken communication, which renders what is unknowable uh, observable and hearable to the speaker and to the listener. Without dialogue, we cannot even access parts of our mind because they do not yet have form. Let me try to cast this in a more digestible and understandable framework. Stern's work is demonstrably verified. In fact, all analysts' work is in some way demonstrably verified in the sense that uh, human behavior shows that we are all vexed by confounding and troublesome experiences of living. We engage in relationships, for instance, in confusing ways. We end many marriages and divorce, roughly half. And we consume more psychiatric medications than any population could possibly need because we do not understand ourselves or the experiences of living that cause us emotional angst. Hence, we act out symptoms of our distress rather than regulating our internal worlds and our way of relating more symbolically. We have only the process of communication to rely upon for the examination of what it means to exist and to engage in being itself. More simply, if an ancient person, say, was prohibited by his village from pointing at a tree and saying, tree, and then talking with someone else who walked up and about what that was that was being called tree, and then others engaging in the use of the word and uh, doing different things with it, like putting it in other utterances. Uh, if we didn't have the freedom to utter things that are representations of what our eyes see and our ears hear and our fingertips touch, would anyone today be able to recognize a tree as such? Well, it may sound absurd to put this in such an elemental uh, framework, but really the question is, what are the consequences of a culture that stops its citizens from examining the most important issues of their generation? What if we revert to a primitive form of relating where social media provides a theatrical display for any who become anaphylactically shocked by ideas that they do not prefer or present themselves hysterically as being anaphylactically shocked? The outcome is, of course, that we cannot, as a massive village, process and metabolize the meaning of changes upon us. We will only allow, in that case, salutes at the brow to the recognized virtue du jour. Be that virtue a paranoid fantasy that the 2020 election was stolen, or uh, any of the far-left agenda points that are now circulating, perhaps as counterpoints to the far right, uh, as an example of something that really seems uh, quite extreme to me, 
There's a colleague, a fellow analyst in New York City, who recently wrote a paper that was actually accepted and published by the American uh, Psychoanalytic Association, where he wrote about white people, uh, whiteness and white people as having a parasitic condition that has no known cure. In reading through the abstract of this paper, it was really outlandish. I, and I'm not joking, by the way. That, that actually was published in an eminent academic journal. If my colleagues felt able to talk openly in public, I have to think that the public may have seen a more reasonable cadre of analysts rise and discuss such a paper, such a divisive paper, and uh, demonstrate a more reasonable way of looking at the world. We need to be able to speak together so that we can hear ourselves speak and so that others can help reformulate what we say and so that we can engage in a process of examining what we see and experience in the world. Without such liberty, we will regress into a primitive culture where only certain utterances are acceptable forms of language. We will not complexify and we will regress into simple-minded compliance. Say there was something earnestly valuable in that analyst's paper on whiteness. And I assume there, there is. In fact, I can imagine if I'm trying to invent some kind of meaning for him that may be present but I'm not aware of, that, you know, finding oneself in a dominant culture can uh, lead someone to develop uh, in-group norms that exclude others and so forth without even knowing it. Now, you hardly have to write a paper that is entitled Parasitic Whiteness in order to meaningfully and in an engaging way take on the topic in a manner that offers others an invitation to the discussion table. Is it possible that if my colleagues were more able to speak up in public and felt less scared of cancellation or other things, that they may have approached this author and helped him reformulate what he had to say so that any kind of earnest and authentic message that he did have to offer could be more widely embraced? That would have taken dialogue. It would have taken disagreement and an openness to disagreement being valuable. It is worth wondering what constitutes the foreclosing of conversation, dialogue, and of debate. It seems to me that there is a skepticism that has emerged in the world as to whether rationality will hold sway. That is, if people are left to debate and converse, Will humans yield to more grounded and evidence-based notions? Will worse ideas, that is, uh, lose the day? Well, a case could be made that that often doesn't happen. Maybe mostly doesn't happen. Maybe we, maybe we amble through terrible ideas in order to get to the good ones. But in asking this question, a major paradox emerges. In order to engage in the world of reason through discussion, one has to have a faith that reason will win out. 
faith, that reason will win out. This is a paradox because faith is offset to be the death of reason. Which means, of course, that reason rests on observable or tangible evidence. Why else would you distinguish it from the word faith? This problem leads directly into the sad and demeaning statements that are coming from many aspects of our society right now. On one hand, I will touch upon again the fact that... um, Supporters for Donald Trump did not really care to observe the lack of evidence that there was any effective voter fraud in the 2020 election. They simply knew what a reasonable conclusion ought to be, and that evidence was deformed or defective if it did not support that conclusion. And on the far left, there is now a growing corpus of opinions that empiricism is somehow the exclusive province of white people and that it displays the term whiteness or the characteristic whiteness. And we will leave for a later date, a later podcast, what it might mean about our society that we are now having an emerging acceptance of separating people by physical characteristics. Let me uh, present this, that is, in unequivocal starkness. The evidence that empiricism and a focus on objectivity is utterly not a consequence of or even largely associated with white people is the fact that a huge proportion of the United States, almost exclusively white, is currently engaging in a mass paranoid fantasy that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. If a focus on objective evidence was the province of white people, how could such a stunning portion of the country display a total disregard for the objective reality that Joe Biden won the election with no evidence of voter fraud? Obviously, white people are susceptible to empiricism being hijacked by innate humanness, just like anybody else is. We now have two revolving sides of our politics that aim to override the Enlightenment process. Of the West, by regressing us to a form of religious conviction. Both camps require you to know the truth before having the ability to analyze anything. It's a useful moment to remember the Tuskegee Airmen or any of the all-black fighting platoons in American military history. If empiricism and examination of evidence was not allowed to occur or was somehow looked at as a terrible attribute of whiteness, how would anyone have been able to look at the fact that those fighting units were among the most effective in U.S. military history. And if that was not possible, would integration of the military have been possible, given that the racist arguments involved arguments of inferiority, and those arguments caused in part the initial segregation of those units in the first place? Someone had to be able to look at the evidence and say, wait a minute, There is no evidence of inferiority. No evidence. 
In fact, the black military units were some of the most lethal and effective units in existence. Someone had to look at the data for that to happen. Evidence roughly means things that appear to happen in a pattern in the physical world. What will be the consequences of putting blinders on and pretending not to see evidence? I am suggesting here that the outcome could be profound and collectively regressive. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this piece. Next week, I'll be addressing the spiritualization, or perhaps the sacralization, of American culture. We're going to take a look at the strange religious and spiritualized aspects of commercials these days, and the demand for purity and piety in our public figures, and we're going to talk about what those movements mean. A quick note about supporting the podcast, if you feel up to it, please go to Patreon and search for Thinking Kind. I'm your host, Lucas Klein, and I appreciate you listening. I'll see you here next week. Take good care.